Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And this is the show where we talk about what we need to do to address climate change and how we make those things happen. So, Alex, this week we're sharing some wisdom from a woman named Sherry Mitchell. Sherry is an Indigenous rights attorney, author, and activist. Mm -hmm. And she's a contributor to the book that you co-edited, All We Can Save. Mm -hmm. And her essay is called Indigenous Prophecy and Mother Earth. And near the beginning of that essay, she has a sentence that I find to be really poignant, which follows on a remark she makes about Indigenous knowledge having been relegated to obscurity. And she writes, Ironically, the indigenous ways of knowing and being that European colonists saw as primitive and uncivilized are now being actively sought out to save our environment and humankind from the brink of extinction. So we're going to dig into that today. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, actually, we're not digging into it. Mm -hmm. But two other incredibly capable podcast hosts are. We are, once again, as we do from time to time, sharing the love and sharing uh, an episode of another incredible climate podcast. This one's called No Place Like Home. It's co-hosted by Marianne Hitt and Anna Jane Joyner. And you might recognize Marianne's voice. She's been on the show before. She is a climate campaigner and strategist who was with the Sierra Club for over a decade, leading the Beyond Coal campaign and then their campaigns in general. And this spring, she became senior director at Energy Innovation, which is a climate and clean energy policy think tank. Her co-host, Anna Jane Joyner, is a climate communications expert based on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. So when I first heard this podcast episode, I did something that I've never done before or since, which is that when I got to the end of it, I actually went back and listened to the entire thing again. Oh. (laughs) Because I was so moved by this conversation. So I'm just really excited to share this with our listeners today. And so we are really excited to share this conversation that Anna Jane Joyner and Marianne Hitt had with Sherry Mitchell. It touches on the hero's journey, biodiversity, and something called the dandelion insurrection. I mean, how do you not stick around for that? <laughs> it's coming right up. Stay tuned. Okay, so we're going to start the episode a couple minutes in. The first voice you're going to hear is Sherry Mitchell. And then you're going to hear the voices of Marianne and Anna Jane a little bit later as they come in and ask questions. So please enjoy this episode of No Place Like Home. The Penobscot Nation is in the central Wabanaki Territory. And I grew up on an island nation surrounded by the Penobscot River the Wabanaki are the people of the Dawnland. Uh, Shkwaban, which is the beginning of uh, Shkwabanaki, is the light that peaks up over the horizon just before dawn. And we are the people of that first light. And so our tribal nations include tribes in Maine and the Canadian Maritimes. When I say that I'm Penobscot or Bunawapskek in my language, I'm actually placing myself in the center of an entire ecosystem that includes the water, the land, the peoples, the animals, the fish, the birds, the insects that inhabit that place that we make up 
that place of being that we all share. And so from my earliest framing, that awareness was part of my instruction. And uh, I've never been able to think of myself as anything other than that. This is something that we've asserted in our stories since time immemorial. And that belief was labeled as uh, magical thinking or uh, superstitious absurdity for a long, long time. And now science has come to realize that what we were discussing in our relational models is actually the structure of life on the planet. And so our awareness of our connectivity to all things, to all living aspects of life here on Mother Earth is reflective of our understanding of the larger web of creation that we're connected to. I think one moment when the real acute impact of climate change and fossil fuel extraction on Native Americans here in the U.S. really hit home for folks was during the Standing Rock period. Did you travel there? I did. I was actually there when the permit was initially denied by Obama when they um, began to close down the camp in the middle of a blizzard in December. And had been working here on the ground at home, collecting resources, raising money, sending supplies to the camp for about five months prior to actually traveling there myself. Being able to be there and to stand upon that ground where so many have made stands for the rights of life and the rights of indigenous peoples in the past was a really powerful experience, even though I wasn't able to be there for very long. And Standing Rock is incredibly significant for a number of reasons. And I think one of the most important reasons is that it was the fulfillment of a prophecy from 1877 that was given by Crazy Horse. And when you read that prophecy or hear that prophecy, and then you think about what happened at Standing Rock, it's really clear that the two events are inextricably linked. And the ceremony where that prophecy was received by Crazy Horse was a stone's throw from where the stand at Standing Rock occurred. And if you'd like, I can share that prophecy with you. Oh, please, I would love that. So the Crazy Horse prophecy that was given in 1877, following up a ceremony that Crazy Horse held with Sitting Bull, goes as follows. Upon suffering beyond suffering, the Red Nation shall rise again, and it shall be a blessing for a sick world, a world filled with broken promises, selfishness, and separations, a world longing for light again. I see a time of seven generations when all the colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life and the whole earth will become one circle again. In that day, there will be those among the Lakota who will carry knowledge and understanding of unity among all things. And the young white ones will come to those of my people and ask for this wisdom. I salute the light within your eyes where the whole universe dwells. For when you are at that center within you, and I am at that place within me, we shall be as one. 
And so there are many things about this prophecy that I've noticed over the, over the last several years that ring true for me. First of all, when you think about the stand at Standing Rock, young people from all over the world, from non-Indigenous nations, came to Standing Rock to stand with the Lakota people in their stand for the protection of the waters and to learn from them. They came to stand with them to learn about the understanding of unity among all things. And so those words in the Crazy Horse Prophecy came to fruition at that time. I also think that that was a seeding of a whole new generation of climate activists that have now dispersed back to their homelands and all over the world where they're carrying that understanding of unity among all things with them into the work that they're doing. Another piece of this that I think is significant is that for centuries, the indigenous understanding of the connection between all life has been ridiculed and has been decried by science as being a superstitious absurdity. But in 2015, 11 scientific institutions unveiled their Tree of Life project, which actually connected 2.3 billion species as being interrelated. And so, you know, when we're talking about the sacred tree of life, we're talking about the young white ones coming to learn from the Lakota people. There are all of these things that are going on around the time that the stand at Standing Rock first began to rise up, not only in that location, but in other places in this country that lead us to believe that there's a new understanding and a new awareness that is waking up within people that is going to inform the climate activism going forward. I'm curious, given that the pipeline has since been built, even despite the overwhelming protests from people on the ground and across the world and the lawsuits and all of those things. And it's hard not to feel depressed or defeated when you encounter defeat. So what wisdom or insights you have about that element of the story? I don't see there being defeat at Standing Rock. What I see is the forward movement of flawed behavior in this moment in time. However, I think that the great success of Standing Rock was the more than 15,000 people that traveled there throughout that time who took with them from that place seeds of knowledge that are now spreading around the world and are rising up in protection of the sacred waters that sustain our lives. To me, it's reflective of what my friend Rivera's son calls uh, the dandelion insurrection, where, you know, you blow on a dandelion and all the seeds disperse into all the different directions and that it's impossible for you to capture every single seed. And so now we have this seeding of knowledge, this seeding of commitment, this seeding of activism that's rising up all over the world. And a lot of that is the result of what happened at Standing Rock. The dandelion insurrection. It's a brilliant phrase. I will be carrying that little dandelion seed with me forward for sure. Um, And that brought to mind for me a passage from your book, 
that I found very powerful because I am a climate activist. I'm working to try to move the U.S. off of coal and uh, as head of the Beyond Coal campaign at Sierra Club. And so there's a chapter in your book called Conquest Activism. The very first paragraph, which I will read for our listeners that I'd like to ask you about is conquest is the vehicle that drives colonization. It has been the modus operandi for 17 centuries. It has infiltrated all areas of our lives. The tendency to overthrow runs deep. The goal of much of our activism has been to topple one system and replace it with another. This practice perpetuates the cycle of domination and does nothing to help us achieve our broader goal of creating unity within our movements. So I think a lot of people who are looking at the climate crisis and the short amount of time we have to really make the changes that we need very much want to overthrow the fossil fuel industry. Uh, And so can you talk about why that is a problematic way of looking at the challenge in front of us and what a different model might be? I think that one of the challenges of our time is overcoming the ingrained thinking and ideologies of our collective past, which are wrought with examples of conquest and domination. And that when we are looking to be creating a new way of being in the world, we can't use the same tools that were used to build the broken reality that we're living in at this time. And conquest is one of those tools of domination that has been used repeatedly throughout history that has led us to the place that we're in right now. To move forward under the guise of conquest and claim somehow that that's leading us toward a new way of being is disingenuous. And so we have to be willing to utilize different tools in order to do that. And so when we think about our spiritual journey, you know, the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell talked about and and others have talked about, when I think about how that relates to my own indigenous way of knowing and the ways that we have been told that we have the responsibility and the obligation to live in balanced harmony with the rest of life in order to claim the right to live here, that I can't be destroying another if I hope to be promoting the sustaining of life. That whole cycling forward of the hero's journey is not about destroying what's before you, but transcending the differences that we have, and then taking what's useful and cycling forward together as a whole. Part of the flawed thinking of the colonial patriarchal system is this belief in oneness being equal to sameness. And I think that that is a detriment to us all. If we look at a healthy functioning ecosystem, it's filled with biodiversity. If we look at the human body, there's all of this diversity of all of these different systems that are working together harmoniously to create a healthy functioning being. It's no different with our societies that we need diversity of opinion. We need diversity of values. We need diversity of views so that we can balance and harmonize all of those things to create a healthy functioning system that allows each individual component to live unencumbered and unmolested by the domination of others. And we can't do that if we're completely suppressing ideas. And so we we got into this mess because we have suppressed 
ideas. We have um, relegated the way of life of indigenous peoples that was capable of sustaining life here for tens of thousands of years to obscurity and infiltrated the society with a very narrow demographic from within the colonial set, that of white wealthy men. And so we have to be able to make space for the generation of ideas and innovation as we're moving forward. And it has to be something that is not meant to be focused on destruction, but on creation. We have to be focused on doing the work that's required for us to transcend our differences. And that doesn't mean that we passively allow harmful activities to continue. We have to engage processes and practices that allow for us to stand in the flow of harm and stop the harm that's coming toward us. We certainly have to become educated and aware of the harms that are flowing in our direction. And we have to be planning on moving forward in a new way. So in the book, I talk about the 80-10-10 rule. And so we use 10% of our energy educating ourselves and learning about what are the problems that we're facing at this time. Where is the harm coming toward us? What is the source of that harm? What's feeding that harm? Because a lot of these systems and structures are being kept alive artificially. They're on life support. We need to allow them to die a natural death by withdrawing our support for their continued existence rather than annihilating them. Then we invest another 10% of our energy in stopping the flow of harm that's coming toward us. This is a warrior philosophy from my tradition called Zmognus, which means that you stand in protection of life by stopping the flow of harm that's coming towards you without harming the other, because it's a stand that recognizes the sacredness of all life. And then a full 80% of our energy is spent visioning and actively creating the world that we wish to inhabit. And so when we think about what we feed grows, and we understand that basic concept that leads to the creation of physical matter in our world, you know, which goes back to teachings from our oral tradition about vibration and frequency creating form. If we understand that basic building block of creation and understand that what we feed grows, then we're going to start feeding the world that we actually want to inhabit and stop investing so much of our time and our energy focusing on what we don't want to continue. And one of the things that I think is critically important for people to recognize is that this rising tension, this rising anxiety that people are feeling is not necessarily evidence that something is wrong, but perhaps evidence that something is being righted within us. So we're going we're gonna to pause here, leave you with that really compelling and powerful idea. And we're going to take a quick break and share the rest of this conversation with Sherry Mitchell when we come back. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to How to Save a Planet. We are listening to an interview with author, lawyer, and indigenous activist Sherry Mitchell from an episode of the podcast, No Place Like Home. It's hosted by Marianne Hitt and Anna Jane Joyner. And where we left off, Sherry was describing how this rising tension a lot of people are feeling about the planet and climate may not be something to shy away from. In fact, it might be just the type of awareness we need to move forward. All right. Back to the interview with Sherry. So we have stories, countless stories of creation that speak to different aspects of our being and how we connect with the larger world around us. And one of those stories provides us with an understanding of this connectivity through a web of life that when you look at it in modern scientific terms, describes quite eloquently what scientists call quantum entanglement. And so what quantum entanglement tells us is that any matter that was once connected physically can never be disconnected energetically. And for us, that instruction goes beyond energetically to also include spiritual connection. And so when we think about our creation and our understanding of science today, when we think about those two things and we think about this awareness that, okay, we're related to all of these different species, we have this actual physical connection to them. We think about our seed of life stories, which are very similar to the Big Bang Theory, that we all were comprised of this one seed of life. Our seed of life stories with Kachiniwesk, who is the sacred feminine, and Ekchamundo, the sacred masculine, come together and create through this song, vibration of frequency, this seed of life that we all come from, when that seed explodes and begins expanding across the universe, we all were at one time part of this one pool of matter that became all life in the known universe. And then taking that a step further, if we think about amputees, amputees often talk about feeling uh, sensations in the foot that is no longer there. And that is called phantom limb theory. And so what phantom limb theory is explaining is elements of quantum entanglement. And so when we think about this rising anxiety, this rising panic, incredible sense of loneliness and grief that people are experiencing across the planet, how I view that is as us actually all experiencing a global phantom limb phenomena where we're starting to feel, starting to reconnect and feel the experiences of other living beings on the planet. When we're having, uh, waking up in the middle of the night with panic that we can't identify a source to, perhaps it's true that we're experiencing the panic of the trees as fire is rushing towards them or as they're being chopped down in unprecedented numbers. When we're feeling this immense grief, perhaps we're feeling the grief of the mother whale who carried her baby around for 17 days trying to show us what we're doing to her ecosystem and their ability to continue living. When we're feeling this immense loneliness, perhaps we're feeling the loneliness of the last white rhino on the planet who has no one left within their species to communicate with. And so maybe this rising sensitivity is actually an expression of something being righted on a fundamental level within us. And if we lean into that tension, perhaps we can have the opportunity 
to see where our work most needs to occur. I like to think about that, that rising tension as an opportunity for us to connect to the places where suffering exists in the most extreme senses on the planet and for us to put our energy into that, into that area to alleviate some of that suffering. That really spoke to me. Um, and it also brought to mind the chapter in your book uh, about the important role of women in this work. I am a mom, so I have experienced childbirth, the comparisons between the actual pain and beauty of birthing a human child and the perhaps larger birthing process that might be underway. The chapter is called Women Are the Water Bearers of the Universe. Can you talk more about what that means and the special role that women might play in this waking up we're all doing together? Well, I think that there's no question in the minds of any thinking person that the role of the sacred feminine is critically important at this time. We think about the role that women have traditionally held within our societies as the givers of life, the nurturers of life, the sustainers of life, and the way that women have been suppressed, oppressed, subjugated, killed, removed from any type of central position within the patriarchy, uh, it's easy to see how the value of life has been diminished over time under that structure. And so bringing back the voice of the woman um, into these social dialogues that are contemplating our ability to continue to live is immeasurable. In the book, I talk about some of the definitions for various roles that men and women take. And I think it's important to recognize that uh, these are not gender-specific roles. These are characteristics of an energy that's being carried by individuals. And so there may be somebody who is identified as a man who carries a lot of characteristics of the divine feminine within them. There could be somebody who identifies as a woman who also carries the energies of the sacred masculine within them. These energetic qualities in these stories are simply reflective of some of these historic roles that men and women have taken. In the book, when I talk about the word for wife in the book, it is the one who keeps me connected to my heart and spirit. When we think about the role of the sacred feminine in the unfolding story that we're all living, the one who keeps us connected to our heart and spirit has been absent. And so we see that the action being taken out in the world is largely heartless. We see that people have lost their connection to deep spiritual truth. Also, when a woman is carrying life in her body, the space where she carries that life is directly beneath her heart so that the life that's being created is being cultivated in the space of heart-based wisdom. And life is deeply connected to heart-based knowing in its creation, in the process of it being birthed into the world. Um, there's a, a great deal of, of heart-based wisdom that 
feeds and guides those processes. And so when we think about the life um, outside the womb, no longer being governed by the wisdom that sustains, creates, nurtures, and cultivates life, uh, we can see how we ended up in a society that devalues life, where people hear about massive loss of life, whether it be plant life or animal life or human life, and they just say, geez, that's too bad, and they go back to eating their dinner. We've been ingrained um, by these ideologies that lead us to believe that the sacredness and the value of life is no longer important, that it's not worthy of our consideration. And it is that very ideology that has led us to this place of massive destruction of life, where one million species on the planet are currently facing extinction. And one of those species is us as human beings. Our relatives in the natural world have faced the brunt of what is now cycling back and coming toward us as human beings like a tidal wave. And so we have to really reinvigorate that compassionate awareness that is carried by the sacred feminine into all of our social dialogues so that we can begin to move forward in a way that recognizes that all living beings, whether they be from the human species or from an animal species or a plant species, have the right to live out the course of their life with dignity and that we have a sense of responsibility toward that life. That basic premise comes from the sacred feminine. And so to, to try to move forward without that voice, um, in my opinion, would be catastrophic. Another book that I'm working on right now as I'm finishing up the sequel to the sacred instructions is a book called women rise wild, which talks about women reconnecting to the wild aspects of raw life. Um, connecting to this umbilical connection to Mother Earth and bringing forward all of this rich, fertile, life-giving, life-sustaining, life-cultivating, nourishing energy into all aspects of our being because women strip away that foundational aspect of their being when they step into specific roles within the patriarchy to show that they're strong enough to stand with the men. And that's a colossal mistake. We don't need women who can prove that they're the same as the men. We need women who are willing to stand up for the protection of all life on this planet. We need women who are willing to stand up for the continuation of the species for our future generations. We need women who are willing to say, no, uh, your behavior is out of control and we're going to stop you from moving forward. We need women of profound courage to rise up right now. We need them to rise up wild. When we start talking about these aspects of our movement within climate change or when we're thinking about social justice, that that voice of the woman has been missing. And right now it's, it's desperately needed. Thank you for sharing that. And we want to be respectful of your time. I know it's the end of the hour. Um, if you do have time and if you're willing, there's one story that we would love for you to share. If you wouldn't mind just telling it the story of the cannibal giant. 
We have a figure in our mythology who is called Giwok, and Giwok is the cannibal giant. Giwok's role is one of protector of Mother Earth. And so Giwok sleeps deep in the forest and remains there immobile until he hears a very specific call from Mother Earth. And this call from Mother Earth informs him that human beings are consuming faster than she can produce and are harming her faster than she can heal and that they have become a threat to life. And so when Giwalk hears that specific call, he wakes up and he begins to move into society and lull the people into this false sense of security and starts dancing them faster and faster and faster and getting them to consume more and more and more until they consume themselves off the planet and their behavior leads to their own extinction so that Mother Earth can replenish herself and begin to renew. Our elders tell us that Giwok is awake at this time and that we are living in the time of the cannibal giant. When I think about our society and I think about the fact that colonization has no natural endpoint, that it reaches a certain point that appears to be the end, but then it turns around, cycles back and begins cannibalizing itself. It's easy to see that we are living in those times because those who thought they were part of the safe colonial settler set are now realizing that their lives are also being endangered by this cannibalization of life that has been set loose upon the planet through colonization. And so the story of Giwok, uh, the cannibal giant, is incredibly relevant at this time where we have to decide how we're going to move forward because there's only one way for us to put Giwok back to sleep and that's for us to wake up. So if we don't wake up to the truth of the reality that we're living in and the truth of the harms that have been caused by our ways of being in the world in relation to conquest, domination, colonization, mass unchecked consumption and capitalism, then we are going to dance ourselves right off the planet. I encourage everyone to take this opportunity to wake up from the dance of Giwok and to begin walking back into alignment with the dance of life. I think that is a perfect way to end this beautiful and illuminating conversation. And I just want to thank you so much. Personally, I have grown in the past hour. Um, I'm sure our listeners are going to as well, and I can't wait for them to hear it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to have this conversation with you. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. It's been an absolute honor. Thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by Allison Wilson. We are proud to be distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and please also leave a review there for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out and helps other people find our show. And join the conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home. Home.
We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sherry Mitchell from the podcast No Place Like Home, hosted by Marianne Hitt and Anna Jane Joyner. You can check out other episodes of No Place Like Home anywhere you listen to podcasts, including on Spotify. And you can find more from Sherry, including her book, Sacred Instructions, at sacredinstructions.life. I mean... Love the dot life. What a website. Yes. Best URL I've heard this week, for sure. (laughs) And Alex and I will be back next week with a brand new episode of How to Save a Planet. See you then. Bye, everyone.